Hey everybody, it's me, Josh, your old pal. And for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen our episode on Zoot Suits. It is a fascinating, overlooked piece of history about how clothes can mean so much more than just what's keeping the elements off of you or keeping your modesty intact. Plus, listen up for a surprise appearance by Mystery Science Theater 3000. It is quite surprising. Uh, enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuckers Bryant. And uh, since two of us are sitting together again, uh, and it's not lunchtime. Um, it's not means, leg wrestling time. That's <laughs> true. This means it's uh, Stuff You Should Know. Right. Yeah. What's up, dude? How are you, Josh? I'm good. We just got something in today that I want to give a shout out of thanks for. Oh, yeah? To our friend uh, Martin Van Nostrand. Did that come in today? Today. Okay. Uh, he kept emailing us, pestering me, like, has it not come yet? <laughs> like, I, like, I'm the postmaster general or something like that. Right. But anyway, he sent us each a t-shirt and the new CD of his band, The Bangalores. Yeah. In Vitro Meat is the name of the album. <laughs> and it's pretty awesome. I haven't listened to it yet. I just got it. Can't wait. He sent us some some songs off of it already. Oh, some previous cuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he he was the first person to record a Stuff You Should Know song, like, in 2008. You remember? Well, yeah, and I think he has a Toxoplasmosis song on the new one, right? He does. Yeah, we've inspired a lot. I think he released a whole album of Stuff You Should Know songs. <laughs> really? Yeah, and, like, quick little punk songs, too, like a minute and a half, so there's, like, 50 of them. Yeah. But anyway, thanks a lot to Van Nostrin. We won't say his real name, but we know it. We do, finally. We didn't for a long time. But anyway, if you uh, feel like checking that out, it's um, the Bangalores, like the city in India, and the album is In Vitro Meat. And we'll probably get in trouble for endorsing this. (laughs) Probably so. So, uh, Chuck, you want to get to it? Yes. Have you ever heard of some dumb laws? Yeah, man. There are some dumb laws in this great land of ours. For example, if I may, I've prepared a, a short list. Awesome. In Alabama, bear wrestling matches are prohibited. It's illegal to sell peanuts in Lee County after sundown on Wednesday. That would be Lee County, Alabama. Did it give a reason for that one? No, there are some. This is from, uh, I think, dumblaws.com. And um, <laughs> they have like just international laws, state laws, um, right. local laws. And then under some of them, they have, like, full text of the law or why this law exists. Gotcha. So it's a pretty comprehensive site. Um, in Hawaii, coins are not allowed to be placed in one's ears. They're for spending only. Okay. Um, all residents may be fined as a result of not owning a boat. You're going to Hawaii tomorrow, right? Or in I the am. next couple of days. Yeah. I dare you to put a coin in your ear and walk around yeah, eating out of a can and be of like, spam. I don't own a boat. <laughs> I don't own a boat. Right. Chumps. Um, back in our fair state of Georgia, to legally use profanity in front of a dead body, which lies in a funeral home or in a coroner's office. That's respectful. That's a good law. Okay. Um, in Ackworth, which yeah. is close to Kennesaw, where I grew up, where the you worth. had to own a gun. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this. In Ackworth, all citizens must own a rake. <laughs> really? Yeah. Not a blower. A rake. Okay. I think a blower, that's kind of like asking a lot of some some of the... Um, Lower-income classes, (laughs) you know. Um, In Athens on Mondays, it's illegal for one to whistle very loudly after 11 p.m. What? But on Mondays. Okay. 
And then California, of course, is going to have some zany laws. They have tons and tons of wacky, dumb laws. Animals are banned from mating publicly within 1,500 feet of a tavern, school, or place of worship. That, I agree. <laughs> Women may not drive in a house coat. Don't I even try agree it. with that, too. In Fresno, getting drunk on a playground is against the law. That is sound. I, I don't agree with that one. It's sensible. <laughs> uh, and then in Los Angeles, it's illegal to wear a zoot suit. Yeah. Still? Still. Wow. So I bring that up, and I knew Chuck would like that last one, because I'm sure there's stories behind almost all of those zany laws, or at least there's some reasoning. People don't just make up crazy laws. Like bear wrestling. I'm sure it got out of hand once, and now they're just like, that's it. It's illegal. <laughs> right. So Chuck and I actually know the reason why zoot suits are illegal in Los Angeles County, California, and we're going to tell you about it today. It's pretty neat. This little article started off as a bit of a uh, a lark. I don't know. But we thought zoot suits, those are interesting and cool, but it's more than a suit, as it turns out. It really is. It was, at least. You should probably mention, like, what is a zoot suit, Chuck? I think everybody's seen them before. Yeah, back in the 1930s, uh, they were very much in fashion, especially in in, uh, Latino communities and African-American communities. Mm -hmm. Coast to coast, though. Yeah. Seems like. Uh, Cesar Chavez, Malcolm X, Cab Calloway, big band leaders, the jazz scene in New York, all very much associated with zoot suits. Tom Cat from Tom and Jerry. Yeah. He was going after a girl, and she said he was a square and was corny, and he goes out and gets him a zoot suit and becomes a cool cat. A cool cat. Yeah. So uh, you, you'll know a zoot suit. They were originally worn, uh, made of wool and then later rayon, but you'll know it because they're very distinct. They have uh, mm-hmm. very broad padded shoulders, uh, very long-waisted coats. Uh, the suit pants were worn really, really high, like up over the belly, and uh, were very tight at the top, then ballooned out like MC Hammer style. Right. And then tapered back down again at the ankle. Or were pegged. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you achieve that look. Right. And um, the jackets exaggerated contours and colors. Uh, a lot of times they would wear the big uh, pocket watch chain that went down to their knee mm-hmm. and the hat with the feather. And it was pointy just like... Pointed shoes. Pointed shoes, sure. Um, so they... If it sounds a lot like um, pimps, 70s pimps yeah. wear to you. Not too far off, I guess. I think it, you could make an argument that it was a predecessor of that. And in fact, you mentioned Malcolm X's favorite zoot suits. I didn't realize this today, but in researching zoot suits, Malcolm X used to be called Detroit Red, who was in fact a pimp. Yeah. And he uh, apparently got his education in uh, Harlem. And became Malcolm X. Did you not see the movie? No, I haven't. It was good. Uh, from what I remember from the awesome Spike Lee movie was that he was uh, into the zoot scene earlier. And then once he, you know, became Malcolm X and uh, not, what was his original name, Shabazz? Uh, yes, I believe so. Malcolm Shabazz. Yeah. So once he became Malcolm X and got serious about uh, civil rights, he he ditched the zoot suit and stuff and was a little more traditionally garbed. Right. Um Another way, so the the zoot suit, you you just nailed it on the head. You said the zoot suit scene. It was very much part of a scene, part of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, It was part of the Pacho scene out in Los Angeles, which we'll talk about. Pacho? Pacho. Pachuco? Pachuco. (laughs) I I like slang on top of slang, so I call it Pacho. (laughs) Exactly. Um, 
So uh, it, it was kind of uh, the uniform of this certain kind of scene. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the upscale black nightclubs of Harlem. Like if if you saw an African American man walking around wearing a zoot suit, you're like, that guy is a high roller, and he knows how to get into the good clubs. I thought you were going to bust out some Cab Calloway slang. Well, you mentioned Cab Calloway yeah. was uh, one of the the uh, people who love zoot suits, and he wrote a dictionary of slang. Mm-hmm. A so, jive. A j- of jive slang, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I could not be square if I tried. <laughs> um, and one of, the, uh, one of the words that he put down was uh, zoot, which he says means exaggerated. Okay. It turns out that there's a whole lot of mystery surrounding the origins of zoot suit. But if I may, in Cab Calloway's jive slang, describe what a zoot suit looks like. You did a great job Please in normal, it. square, corny yeah. terms. But... If you want to talk like a hep cat from the jive jump zoot suit era, uh-huh. you would describe it as a killer diller coat with a drape shape, real pleats, and shoulders padded like a lunatic cell. <laughs> well, it's interesting that he said drape because originally they were known as drape suits and even advertised as extreme, quote, extreme drapes right. in newspapers. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. So, Zoot Suit's hanging out there. It's kind of weird. Ralph Ellison wrote about, um, it, wrote, wrote about it in his Invisible Man, uh-huh. in his novel. The narrator encounters um, three young and extravagantly dressed blacks in their uh, Zoot Suits. And he says that they were the stewards of something uncomfortable. So he's saying like, <laughs> there's just it, it's almost like it was this, it's the same as if you're if you saw a bunch of rave kids wearing like those stupid pants. Yes, in the '90s or whatever, yeah. you know, or, or hip hop kids today. It was this, it was the same thing, except this was much more upscale, right? Than that, but like it was the basically baggy like pants today. Yeah, that people have trouble walking in, but they're still got to have that look, you know, right? Because that's what the cool kids do. Exactly. So this was, you could argue, the original American version of counter culture dress. Right. Agreed. And it grew out of Harlem and was later adopted by um, Mexican Americans or Latino Americans in Los Angeles. Yeah. What's this one bit that it could have originated in Gainesville, Georgia? How about that? So, yeah, there's a lot of, there's some origin stories, right? And the, yeah, and they're none of them are the same, right? And, and they're all very different. No, but I do like that one you're talking about from Gainesville. What is it? Yeah, they uh, a man, uh, a bus driver. I'm sorry, a bus worker named Clyde Duncan from New York um, came back to New York with one and said he bought it in Gainesville, Georgia, and allegedly uh, he had been inspired by Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. and wanted to look like Rhett Butler, right? And so got a tailor in Gainesville to make him this thing. I'd like to go with that story. Well, the New York Times put that story forth, and they said it basically unequivocally. They did. In 1943, and that was the story for many, many years until historians actually started to put real effort and thought into the zoot suits. Um, And they found that it's possibly true, but most likely uh, it came out of either guys like Cab Calloway wearing them. Sure. Or guys like Cab Calloway copying people in the jazz scene. Right. And then, you know, it basically going forth like that.
ultimately, it seems that it did come out of this era, whether it was uh, this Clyde Duncan fella right. who had the idea originally or whatever. You can basically say the Harlem Renaissance, Zoot Suits came out of that. Gotcha. And, you know, I knew that. I did not know of its association within the Latino and largely Mexican community. No, but that's where it, like, really started to... It switched when it hit the Latino American community. Before, it was just like, I'm wealthy, I can get into good clubs, I'm part of this club scene right. in Harlem. Um, when it hit Los Angeles and was taken up by the Pachos... Pachucos. <laughs> right? Um, square. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it changed, it transformed, it turned into something political and became ultimately a sign of defiance. Yeah, in uh, World War II, you know, everyone knows that there was uh, there was rationing going on, everything from food to metals and uh, ultimately wool and cloth. So wearing a zoot suit, which required an abundance of cloth, was uh, deemed not patriotic. Right. Because you're basically flaunting, hey, I don't care about the war effort. I'm going to wear my zoot suit. That's more important to me. Right, exactly. So um, the, in... In the 40s, the War Production Board basically said, we need to cut back all fabric use in the states by 26%. And to help you, here is the new American suit. It's streamlined. It uses less fabric. As long as you're making stuff according to these um, these sketches, you're patriotic, you're American, you're within the law, right? Uncle Sam wanted you to wear tight clothes. Pretty much. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you look at the suits uh, in the 50s and 60s and uh, after the 40s, um, the the American the classic American suit is narrow. It's yeah. a narrow cut. The cuffs are high. Skinny ties. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if that came out of that. I'm sure it did. I bet it did. But you can take what they were saying a different way in that Uncle Sam's telling you to dress like this and everybody dressed like that. Yeah. So zoot suits immediately became um, a, a symbol of defiance. Anybody who wore them was saying, you know, up yours, Uncle Sam. Uh, and it was ultimately illegal to manufacture or advertise a zoot suit or anything that fell outside of those American suits. So, incredibly, bootleg <laughs> and underground tailors yeah. grew up to make and sell zoot suits. That's true. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, especially in Los Angeles, it had an association with uh, gang activity, criminal activity and thuggery, largely because of uh, newspapers that would... To call them, you know, zoot suiters committing crimes. They would, you right. know, label people in its particular clothing right. as being criminals, essentially. Yeah, well, racism is definitely nothing new in this country, and it was um, hot and heavy in the uh, late 30s, early 40s in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Among, um, it was mainly targeted, I think, toward Latino Americans, but it's not like African Americans didn't get the brunt of it as well. Sure. But basically, it was white people in California were like, hey, there's a lot of you these days, so you're making us a little nervous, and um, you wearing the zoot suit is easy to target. It just so happened that the group that they were targeting uh, was actually kind of homogenous. People who wore zoot suits kind of uh, wore them in defiance, but also identified themselves with them, right? The pachos. Yeah, it was a statement of independence, uh, not necessarily thumbing your nose at the United States, but just, hey, I'm independent, I'm Latino, I'm living in Los Angeles since 1940s, and this is our look. So the pachos? But, yeah. The pachucos? Pachucos. The pauchos. I'm seeing pauchos right here. Octavio Paz said pauchos. Did pauchos, he? yeah. Okay. Um, so the pauchos were 
it's, they weren't an import from Mexico. They were a real American hybrid. They were second-generation um, Latino-American kids mm-hmm. who, ironically, because of the war effort, were latchkey kids. Their parents were off working the night shift right. f- um, for war production, and they were basically left to them their own devices. They called themselves 24-hour orphans, the first latchkey kids. And um, they were also arguably the first rebels. And out of their emergence... In America, um, came the the whole concept of juvenile delinquency. Yeah, I love that one quote from Octavio Paz. Can I read that? Yeah, he said the zoot suit was a symbol of love and joy, or horror and loathing, an embodiment of liberty, of disorder, of the forbidden. So it was this single fashion item was uh, at, at the same time asserting your independence and, and individuality as well as what white folks saw as thumb in their nose at the white man, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's exactly what they were doing because, as you said, like they weren't necessarily wearing the zoot suit as a statement. They weren't anti-war protesters. Right. But it was more like, you know what? I'm sick of you racist white people, and I'm I'm not going to hide my identity. I'm not going to try to blend in. Right. I'm not going to go back to my traditional roots from Mexico because I wasn't born here. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to, you know, join the service and and wear an American suit. Like yeah. like so this is this was the compromise and it ticked white people off like crazy. Yeah. And especially white in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, at the time in Southern California there was an enormous presence of um, servicemen sure. who were waiting to ship out to the Pacific Theater from California. Yeah, and they were, you know, rubbing elbows with these guys that uh, a lot of people thought were gang members and zoot suiters, and they rubbed elbows not in a very good way either, uh, which, you know, ultimately led to the zoot suit riots, but there were some pretty striking events that led up to that 1943 summer. So. One of the things you said you mentioned was that the they were getting negative press, right? So people in zoot suits were associated with things like, um, uh, well, let me see, quote, um, the record already reveals killings, stabbings, and cases of innocent women having been molested by zoot suit gangsters. That's from the Los Angeles Examiner. And uh, it, the article was titled, Police Must Clean Up L.A. Hoodlumism, which is not a word. Hoodlumism, right? But so, so there's this joint effort of um, just general racism among whites in the in the general public, um, and servicemen waiting to be deployed specifically, and the Los Angeles media kind of fanning the flames. That's right. And then the Sleepy Lagoon murder happens. The Sleepy Lagoon case. Sleepy Lagoon. Josh was a reservoir uh, by the L.A. River. That's not there anymore. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, not there at all. There's like a plastics plant there now. There's no reservoir. Uh, Yeah, so don't go looking for it, even though they said it's uh, roughly, was it 5,500 Slauson Boulevard in Maywood? I know where that is, actually. I think it's on the way to the airport. Uh, So the Sleepy Lagoon case. um, At the time, Mexican-Americans were denied access to public pools and swimming holes and stuff like that, so they used Sleepy Lagoon as a big... Hangout where they would go and listen to music and swim and have a good time. Um, in August 2, 1942, uh, the body of Jose Diaz was found at this reservoir. And from what I gather, there was a big party, like a big house party, where a fight broke out. Mm-hmm. And one guy ended up getting killed. 
And as a result, they rounded up uh, three to 400 Mexican-American youths, had a corrupt trial where they basically denied them any civil rights, cooked up evidence, had no evidence, had no physical evidence, had no uh, witnesses, nothing of the sort. And they basically pinned that murder on 12 guys. Is that right? Nine kids. Nine but kids, they rounded 12 up total. 300. Yeah. But they railroaded nine with no evidence that the, the guy had even been murdered. And eventually, the Sleepy Lagoon uh, Defense Committee and the U.S. District Court of Appeals overturned that as a miscarriage of justice. Right, but the damage was already done. Yeah, and his killer, incidentally, was never found. They never singled anyone out, Right, which is sad. That's kind of lost a lot of times, I think. But at the same time, you can't just cook up a case against dudes that were there right. and say that they did it. Exactly. So um, the, the press attention that the Sleepy Lagoon case received just fan the flames further and further. Um, and then uh, in June, no, May of 1943, yeah, that's when things really started to take a turn for the worse. That's right. Um, I guess about a dozen servicemen, I think Navy boys, were um, down in uh, East L.A. Yeah. And uh, a, a few of them approached some girls. One of them kept walking. And the one that kept walking passed a, a group of pauchos who were wearing zoot suits. Pachucas. And when, uh, when he passed, um, one of them apparently raised his hand in what the guy took as a, a threatening manner. Uh-huh. So the serviceman grabbed his arm, and right after that, everything went black because somebody knocked him over the back of his head with something, yep. and he fell and broke his jaw in two places. Okay? The other guys see this. The other guys see it, but yeah. before they even react, the, the pouchos jump them, and these 11 other servicemen fight their way out. Yeah. And fight their way over to where the guy is laying, the guy with, who's knocked out with the broken jaw. Yeah, and get him out of there, and right? And get him out of there. Yeah. So this is not, this is not bode well for um, Mexican-American white relations in Los Angeles in 1943. A few days after that, like, revenge is on the mind of everybody after news of this gets out. Yeah, big time, especially in the military community. And uh, basically sort of the same thing happened. Main Street, East L.A. on June 3rd. Uh, 11 sailors got off a bus, and there were words with uh, a gang of young Mexicans. And when I say gang, I should say group. And I, we shouldn't say necessarily Mexicans. The, the, the likelihood was that they were Mexican Is back in confirmed? the 40s, but they were Latino Americans. Okay. Uh, I tried to get to the whole bottom of the word Chicano as well. I know um, Hispanic is from Ronald Reagan. Is it? And it's basically, it insinuates that everybody from Central or Latin America or South America comes from Hispaniola. Well, and what I found from Chicano was that it was a a derogatory term early on, very negative, Mm -hmm. but it meant specifically Mexican-American. And then later, I believe they... Some some of them chose to embrace that word as a point of pride. Yeah, or the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know where it stands today, so... Let's just leave that I'm one alone. I'm just not going to say it. <laughs> so they ran into this uh, group of uh, young Latinos dressed in zoot suits, got in an argument... Uh, the sailors, of course, claimed that they were jumped, although it's unclear exactly how it started. And the LAPD responded and with a group of off-duty officers and on-duty officer, uh, officers calling themselves the Vengeance Squad. 
And they basically took it upon themselves to clean up the streets of East L.A. So the cops. Roughhouse style. The cops, yeah. including off-duty cops, took on the name The Vengeance Squad yeah. and went down to the uh, Latin American quarters, Latino American quarters, and just started beating people up. Yeah, and this really, really set off what would be known as the Zoot Suit Riots. Uh, the next day on June 4th, about 200 uh, U.S. Navy servicemen jumped in a bunch of taxis, went to East L.A. and started... In a started, caravan. Yeah, in a caravan, like a, a mob, essentially. Yeah. And started beating up uh, Mexican kids, 12- and 13-year-old boys, clubbing them, stripping them of their clothes, burning their clothes. Those were, that was the first group they encountered. And a bunch of adults tried to intervene. They got clubbed, too. Then after that, it wasn't just people wearing zoot suits. It was any Latino American that they saw. Yeah. They stormed movie theaters. They stormed bars. They stormed, like, any Yeah, they pulled them businesses. off of streetcars. Yeah, they, and black guys got caught up in it, too. Yeah, there was spread a, over there to was Watts. There was an African-American guy mm-hmm. on, um, on the streetcar in, I think it was in Watts. Um, who was pulled off and beaten to a pulp by servicemen just because he happened to be sitting there and was black. It was literally a riot, and it was yeah. perpetrated by white servicemen. For several days, it was known as the Zoot Suit Riots. Cops were there, but uh, they had orders to not arrest any of the servicemen. Right. So they were kind of given carte blanche for a few days. So we, for a few days. Finally, the Los Angeles City Council comes to its senses and bans the presence of any uh, servicemen um, in that area of Los Angeles and issues an ordinance whereby uh, zoot suits are prohibited. And in the end, 150 people were injured in the riots. Uh, police arrested more than 500 Latinos mm-hmm. on charges ranging from rioting to vagrancy. Yeah. And I don't know if any servicemen were arrested. I think a bagel number Zero. of servicemen is probably a good guess. I couldn't find any. Not to say it didn't happen, but my feeling is it was probably zero. Yeah. And they, uh, you know, the local press got a hold of this and called it a, quote, cleansing effect and said it was a pretty great thing going on yeah. in the city when, in fact, it was one of the, the darkest, some of the darkest days of, of Los Angeles yeah. in their history. Pretty sad. It is. It's a pretty sad and strange story. Yeah. Do you, I mean, is there anything else to this? Um. No, I don't. The aftermath is. I oh, I tell the, you, one interesting thing from the article was that uh, years later, uh, young Russian Soviet uh, teenagers would wear zoot suits. Oh yeah, as an act of defiance uh, against communism. Against communism. Yeah. So this article of clothing, this fashion statement, was a lot more than that. It's pretty yeah. interesting. And this is one of those weird moments in history where it's not just like, did you know the zoot suit caused this riot, and then you find out that it didn't really. Right. This genuinely started it. Yeah. This was part of this made um, these the pouchos easily identified targets. The whole reason they were wearing it was out of defiance, and it just irked the establishment. Like, the zoot suit caused these riots. It's crazy. It is crazy. Um, and it had an, a, another lasting legacy, if I may. Sure. It, um, it juvenile delinquency, the whole concept of that coming out of this area and this era, mm-hmm. um, I believe gave rise to the like a slew of great movies, Rebel Without a Cause, sure, The Wild Ones, oh yeah, and if I may, mm-hmm. I was a teenage werewolf, <laughs> starring Michael Landon, who was a character saddled with a terrible affliction of throwing milk. So there's this little clip I would like to say. Okay, 
I've pulled you out of fights three times myself in the last month. You're just lucky there weren't any formal complaints. The time before this in the supermarket. It was the checker's mistake. Yeah, but you didn't even give him a chance to rectify it. Boom, you throw a carton of milk right at him. It contained bovine growth hormone and he turned into a giant cow. So uh, that was the Mystery Science Theater 3000 take of <laughs> Michael Landon. Of course. And his milk throwing problem. Awesome. Which probably wouldn't have existed had Zoot Suits not come about. I'd never heard of that movie. I was a teenage werewolf? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they picked him because of his huge mound of hair. Maybe. Because he did look kind of werewolfy right out of the he gate. He was close. Yeah. Even without uh, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 guys um, discussing it, I guess. It's just fun to watch. It is. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a cool movie. Yeah, look for a podcast on the Stonewall riots. We're going to cover that soon, too. That's uh, another overlooked blight of yeah. American history. Yes. We like to point these out. Um, if you want to learn more about all the stuff we talked about, like uh, Cab Calloway's Jive Dictionary, you should search for that on your favorite search engine. Pretty um, cool. Yeah, you could also search for Zoot Suit Smithsonian. Um, that'll bring up a pretty cool article from, I think, like 1984. It's pretty comprehensive. And then, of course, the article on our own beloved site is excellent as well. You can type in Zoot Suits, Z-O-O-T space S-U-I-T-S, if you haven't known what we've been talking about this entire time. You want to type that into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, friends, neighbors, it is time for listener mail. You know, some of that jive, Cab Calloway jazz jive is still like a few of those words I recognize is still being used. It's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. He established a lot of them. Uh Uh-huh. Like. I'm not nearly cool enough to speak like this on a regular basis, but that's all I want in life, really. Like corny came came from this era. Really? Uh, Groovy. Okay. Um, I say groovy a lot. Moo juice for milk. Never heard that. You've not heard that? No. Um, There's Buddy G. As a guy, like, thanks, buddy, G. I've heard that. Um, but it's G-H-E-E. Oh, okay. Um, crumb crushers for Keith. Nice. A freebie, no charge. Really? Gratis, free. That, that came from there. So give me some skin. Yeah, Shake hands. It all came out of this era. Pretty so, cool. Yeah, and we would not have one of the better parts of the movie Airplane. Yeah. Uh, if if, if Cab Calloway and his cronies hadn't had come up with this. And I wish I had one cell of my body that was as cool as Cab Calloway was. He was a cool dude. You know, Minnie the Moocher like, has a lot of drug references in it. Oh, really? Yeah, Smokey is cokey. He liked cocaine. Uh, and uh, they talk about kicking the gong around, which apparently is smoking opium. And Minnie, actually, in the extended version, uh-huh. um, is taken to an asylum where she dies and that's why the song ends with poor men, really? poor men, poor men. <laughs> All right, Josh, I'm going to call this uh, polygraph inside scoop. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty good one. Did anybody ever offer you a polygraph test? No. Nah. Okay. That's right, though. Uh, just listen to the podcast. Oh, he said, dear uh, Josh, Chuck, and Gary, <laughs> I just listened to your podcast on polygraphs. Thought my personal experience might add a little to the discussion. Uh, I was asked at one point in my life to submit to polygraph exams as a witness in a crime. I was interviewed by two different polygraphers at different times. Uh, One piece of equipment I did not hear you describe was a pad that you sit on, which registered whether or not you fidgeted during questions. I'm glad you said fidgeted. Instead of what? (laughs) Okay. This may not be standard, though, because uh, only the first examiner used one. I was not given a pretest like you described in either case. However, they did tell me all six of the questions in advance. 
and uh, which is sort of like a pretest, I guess. Yeah. He just didn't have to answer them. And the polygrapher asked him to make sure he understood all of the six questions. Uh, the first was something like, are there lights on in the room? And in both cases, there were questions like, are you worried? I will ask a question we did not go over. Uh, then I got different versions of the same question. For example, did you see a man in a blue jacket or was a man wearing a blue jacket at the scene? Uh, after the questions were done, I got a break from the machine. Then I got all the questions again in a different order, followed by another break and then another round of the same questions. Asking each question in a different way multiple times was apparently to reduce the possibility of reporting a false reading. But I did notice a couple of hinky things, guys. For example, the first examiner had me close my eyes so that the readings would be guaranteed to be in response to his questions. The second guy did not ask me to do so, and when I asked him if I should, he said it didn't matter. Pretty interesting. Uh, you also mentioned techniques for fooling a polygraph. According to a sign in the waiting room, these techniques can actually cause false positives more than false negatives, though it's probably a biased source. Although... In science, usually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, they ask you to keep your feet flat on the ground through the test so the attack trick wouldn't be possible. And that is from Matthew. And Matthew says, I, by the way, am one of the few listeners who would be thrilled if you included tribal drums in the background of your episodes. Oh, yeah, with you reading listener mail throughout the whole time. Yeah. All those th- combined with the track of us just doing our thing, right? So is that why we're hearing this right now? <laughs> Weird. I hadn't noticed it. Interesting. When did that start? I don't know. Weird. There it is. Well, okay. Well, thank you, Matthew. Um, also, we want to thank our um, house band of tribal drummers. And we want to thank our producer, Jerry, for bending to our every whim. <laughs> uh, At you, a moment's notice. Yeah. If you have uh, any info about a cool little piece of history that uh, may be overlooked, we want to hear about it. And we may even podcast about it. And we may even be courteous enough to give you credit for bringing it up. Yeah. Uh, you can tweet it to us, although it would have to be pretty short as far as history goes. But if you want to, it's SYSK Podcast. Um, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. We also have a uh, couple of spoken word albums up on iTunes under stuff you should know, super stuff guide. They'll cost you, but they're worth it. And you can reach us by email, Chuck. That's right. At Stuff Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.